Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, I'd just like to echo Jason's welcome to you. And it's great that we can still uh, meet together, even though we're online. As we come to look at these verses, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever tried to do something hard? I mean, really tried to do something hard. And have you failed? Maybe it's a physical challenge that you try to do. Maybe you went up to climb Diamond Hill or went for a walk and had to turn back for some reason because you couldn't make it. Maybe you went to do a half marathon or a marathon and you ran out of energy and you couldn't make it, you couldn't finish. I was thinking about this and actually I think the hardest thing that I've ever done was my end of PhD exam where I had to sit for three hours trying to convince two people who had kind of read what I'd written for my PhD that I knew what I was talking about. That didn't go well. There was another two years of work after that end of PhD exam before I actually managed to get my PhD. Have you tried to do something hard? Tried to do something hard? and failed. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a Welsh doctor and a Welsh preacher, used to ask people, are you ready to call yourself a Christian? And he said, when he asked that question, if the person he was asking that question to hesitated, he would know that they hadn't understood what it would mean to be a Christian. Then he'd say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And they'd say, I don't feel I'm good enough. And David Martin Lloyd Jones said, they're thinking of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be accepted with Christ. But you will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of Christian salvation, he said, is to say Jesus is good enough and I am in him. And this is what Paul's been teaching us through the last few chapters of Romans, as we've gone through chapter 5, 6, 7, 8. That it's not about trying. Because of our slavery to sin. Because of our sinful nature. Because we're condemned by the law. It's not about trying. It's about trusting. Not in what we try to do, not in what we think we must do, but in what God has done for us in sending Jesus. That everything has been done for us by Jesus on the cross to come back into a relationship with God. And so Paul is going to say in these verses that we're looking at this morning, if nothing can stop God's people from enjoying God's future, which is where we ended up last week at the end of verse 30 of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say? If God himself is for us, shown by what Jesus has done on the cross for us, then the tie of God's love for his people is unbreakable. There can be no separation from God's love. 
the nature of God's love for us guarantees that the Christian, that God's people, will not be separated from God's love. And that's shown for us. That love of God is shown for us in the work of Christ on the cross. So let's look at these verses before us. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. And let's start with verses 31 to 34. And we get one of Paul's, what then shall we say to these things? This isn't an aside this time like it's been in some of the other cases. This is him bringing to conclusion chapters 5 to 8. What then shall we say to these things? And now Paul has a set of questions. So I want you to imagine, as we come to look at these few questions, the scene of a courtroom. I'm sure you've all seen courtroom dramas, either on television or in films. So imagine a courtroom scene. In the defendant's stand, I want you to imagine me, you. I want you to imagine that there's a prosecution, an accuser, who's going to ask some questions, and then God is going to be there as the judge. And there's three questions asked in this courtroom scene, three challenges in this courtroom scene. First of all, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Secondly, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And thirdly, who is to condemn? Those three questions again, we'll look at them in a bit more detail. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn? And as we look at these questions, we're going to see that there's one answer. That we have to look to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. So first of all, is, if God is for us, who can be against us? The passage we looked at last week, verses 18 to 30, assume that no one's going to be against us when you get to the end here. And so Paul asks this question, if, if God is for us, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Preaching on these verses, John Spur uh, Charles Spurgeon said, this is indisputable. It's indisputable that God is for us. But how do we know? Because that question is there. If, if, how do we know that God is for us? And how do we not abuse these verses by going out and doing what we feel like and saying God is for us? Well, first of all, I want you to, want you to think that this is an amazing thing that we're thinking about here. What an amazing thing it is that we can even ask this question if God is for us the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, if he is for us, who can be against us? And how do we know if God is for us? We'll have heard his call to be one of his people. We'll have placed our trust in Jesus. And the work that he did on the cross in dying for us and being raised from the dead. We'll be listening to God's teaching 
through the Bible, through the words of Jesus in the Bible as well, and through the Holy Spirit opening the words to us. And Paul has some evidence as well here that he gives. First of all, he says, God did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son, but what did he do? He gave him. He gave him up for us all. Now that's not saying that every single person in the whole world is going to come to Jesus. It's not every man, but every Christian here that Paul is talking about. The gift is there for everybody to open and receive, but not everyone will. But what we see here is that this is God the Father's loving initiative. He, he initiates this. He starts it all. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Indicating that he wants to save us. His intent here is to save us, to be for us, if God is for us. And I think we're meant to think here as well of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, of Abraham taking his only son up onto that mountainside, and God asking him to sacrifice him. But Abraham, in the end, only offers Isaac in sacrifice because God puts a substitute ram in place in that story in Genesis 22. But God doesn't spare Jesus from going to the cross. Jesus doesn't have to convince God the Father either to go to the cross. It's God that starts this off. God initiates. Listen to the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, this again is a freely given gift from God. We who have received it, we who God has called to be his people, are united together in this gift of Christ. Imagine, imagine with me, if you will, going out to buy a really, really flashy new car. You go out to the Jaguar garage or the BMW garage or the Mercedes garage in Galway and you scrape together every penny that you have, every cent that you have, to buy the most beautiful, exciting new car. And then you drive out into the Burren or Connemara. You don't drive out to the Burren just at the moment. That's just a bit too far. Out into Connemara or somewhere out in, in Galway. And you just leave that car at the roadside. And you walk away from it. Buying that car has been in vain. Paul says here, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the gift of Jesus, is not like that. It's not in vain. Because how will God not graciously give us all things? How will God, who sacrificed his own son, not do everything to bring the glory of Jesus onto those who follow Jesus? This is the argument that Paul's been building from Romans chapter 5. If God loves us enough to start the rescue, he loves us enough to finish the rescue, to complete it. And I want to draw your attention to the all things here. This isn't all material things. This isn't 
that flash car that we imagined a minute ago. God is not going to just give us that because we follow Jesus. But it's our inheritance as heirs with Christ to the glory of Jesus. It's our place in heaven with God the Father, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. It's all that God provides to bring this about. All the things to do with our salvation. All things, all the things to do with our salvation. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. So the second question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, first of all, we have to ask, who are God's elect? They're his people. It's a term that's used of Israel throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Chronicles and in some of the Psalms. But Paul has used it of us, of followers of Jesus, back in Romans chapter 8 and 28 as well, where we see that we're called according to the love of God for all things to work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We're called to be God's people. We are God's elect, those of us who have heard that call and answered it. And there's a reminder here as well that it's God who justifies. Again, it's not us. We can try and we can try and we can try, but it's not us who will justify. There's no accusation here, no charge that is going to stand for a moment. Because in this courtroom scene, where we are the defendant, and there is this prosecutor, accuser, asking these questions, and God is the judge. If we follow Jesus, if we love him, if we put our trust in him, the judge is satisfied. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Who is to condemn? The judge is satisfied. Who is to condemn? See, we have a reminder here of Christ's death. Compare that with the sacrifice that we saw earlier on. Christ's resurrection. Christ's ascension. And then Christ is placed in this place of authority at the right hand of the Father. And now that as, G as God sees Jesus at his right hand, having died for us, having been raised from the dead, having stood in our place on the cross and borne our sin, the Father looks at all he has done and sees that sacrifice. And who is to condemn? No one. No one. The answers here are only in Christ. Are only in Christ. We can try and we can try and we can try and we will fail. We can try to be good. We can try to be sinless. And we will fail. We will fail. We can only bring our faith and our trust in Jesus' work and his love for us. 
And if you've never done that, if you've never heard this before, I urge you to think about it. I urge you to think that you will never be good enough for God. But you can trust Jesus and you can trust his death and resurrection in your place. But for those of us who have made that step of faith, who have placed our trust in what Jesus has done for us, I want you to think about a couple of things here as well. This means that we're not in a competition to be more good than the person who we sit next to when we're back in church. We're not in a competition with each other because Jesus has done everything for us. It's not about being better than the person you sit next to or even comparing yourself to the person you sit next to. It's about putting your trust in Jesus and then following him. Jesus has done everything for you. So we're not in a competition with each other. And then as we go out to talk to other people about what Jesus has done for us, it means that it's not about us and the things that we have done. So we need to be humble as we do that, as we explain what Jesus has done for us, because we've done nothing for ourselves. God started it by sending Jesus, and Jesus went to the cross for us. So we need to be humble in recognising that as we talk to others about what Jesus has done for us. The Father's love for us didn't begin with the cross. It didn't begin with Jesus standing in for us. The Father loved us way, way before that. And his love for us drove that rescue plan. It drove sending Jesus drove Jesus going to the cross. It drove everything that was achieved by Jesus' sacrifice. So with, with, with Christ as our defence lawyer, with God as the judge, for the followers of Jesus, for the Christian, it's no wonder the prosecution in this courtroom scene loses its, loses its case. So let's look at verses 35 to 39. If God himself is for us, shown by what Jesus did on the cross, then there's another question. Who, Paul writes in verse 35, shall separate us from the love of God? Have you ever felt like you might be separated from the love of God? What sorts of things have you thought might get in the way of God's love for you. Maybe you've been unemployed for a time and you've thought that's going to get in the way of God's love for you. Maybe you've had relationship troubles and your self-worth has dropped and you think that's going to get in the way of God's love for you. Maybe trying to survive through a global pandemic, through COVID-19, just living day to day as we've been able to, we've had to do over the last year or so. Maybe you think that's going to get in the way of God's love for you. Paul says, 
Who shall separate us from the love of God? Can the sufferings of the present time separate us from God's love? Which I think if we're honest, we often think they can. Let's just have a quick think back to Romans 8 and verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so Paul, bearing that in mind, lists off things that he thinks might get in the way of Jesus' love for us. Can tribulation and distress which is a phrase a bit like, I'm sick and tired. It's, it's joined together. Tribulation and distress, trouble and distress. Can famine, food shortages, which were common in ancient Rome, can that get in the way of God's love for us? Can nakedness, which was lack of clothes through not being able to provide them, acquire them, destitution or poverty, can that get in the way of God's love for us? Can danger, the real discomfort for Paul's readers of being a Christian at that time. Is that going to get in the way of being of God's love for the Christian? Shall unemployment, relationship troubles, COVID-19, the world thinking that Christianity is just something that we put on the side, can any of those things separate us from the love of God? And Paul goes further, even, in verse 36, where he uses this verse from Psalm 44 to show a real, not imaginary, a real peril that the Christian faces. Here, it's, it's persecution. And it's persecution in this psalm, suffering, suffering as far as death. And Paul uses this quote to show the deep suffering that it can occur for the sake of God, for those who follow him. Like sheep being led to the slaughter, we're being killed all day long for your sake, for your sake, God. That verse says. C.K. Barrett, who was professor of divinity at Durham University, wrote this. In, uh, in commentating on these verses. Suffering and persecution are not mere evils which Christians must expect and endure as best they can. And I think that's often how we think of suffering and persecution, isn't it? It's something that gets in the way. It's something that we kind of ride out, we kind of walk through. But what did he say after that? They are the scene of the overwhelming victory the overwhelming victory which Christians are winning through Christ. When we face suffering and persecution, it's not to be ridden out, not just to be ridden out. They're the scene of the overwhelming victory which Christians are winning through Christ. Why? Because Paul says, no, nothing is going to separate us from the love of God and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are super conquerors, Paul says. Now, we might not feel like that 
a lot of the time. But this is about overcoming these things in Christ. It's about overcoming trial and tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and death in Jesus. In Jesus. We're not super conquerors in our own strength. We are super conquerors through Jesus in the love of God and in the love of Christ. Again, we see it's because God loved us and sent Jesus because Christ loved us and died for us. And Paul is focusing back on the love of the cross where we see exactly what love is. So we will come out on the winning side, Paul says. We will more than triumph over all these things. It's certain, we are certain. And we're certain that God is going to bring good for his people. We saw it last week in Romans 8, verse 28. And it's, it's not necessarily what we would think of as good in terms of material possessions or life just going well. It's our salvation. It's that we're going to go home to heaven to be with him and meet him. That's the good that he brings about. And again, back in Romans 8, and verse 29, we see that worked out now as we become more like Christ and then when we get to heaven and we become totally one with Christ and God. As we become more like Christ, as we conform more to what Christ was like, we become more like him who more than anybody experienced the fullness of God's love. And so we can experience God's love as we become more like Jesus. Now, I'm just going to finish by these last verses that Paul reads, that Paul writes. There's not a lot to add to them because they're so brilliant. But let's just have a look at them again. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is persuaded. Paul is persuaded. I am sure there is no doubt. There is no doubt for Paul. And that, that I am, he's not that's a, that's a word where he's saying, this is me, I am. He's not going to waver on this. He's not going to falter. He is persuaded and sure. And what is it he's persuaded and sure of? It's of God's love. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, Paul draws us back to what Jesus did on the cross. Because only the cross can show us real divine love and bring us home to heaven so that we might fully enjoy it. And again, God did all this for us 
through his love for us before we ever knew that. Let's go back to Romans 5 and verse 8, where Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while, while what? We were still sinners. Christ died for us. This is to those who God has called and who have opened up that gift of Jesus, received that gift of Jesus for themselves. It sort of joins us, joins us to God, unites us with him. And nothing can ever break this tie of love, the bonds of this love. Nothing. Nothing. And Paul shows that through this pairing language that he uses here. He shows it the totality of nothing being able to separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. All of human experience, life and death, all of the spiritual realms, all of history, all of space and time, this is all inclusive. Nothing, nothing shall separate us, God's people, from his love. And then, on the last day, that love will bring the second coming of Jesus and Christ's final victory over sin and death. And for God's people, we will finally, fully receive that love without any of the sinful nature, without any of the feeling that we're condemned by the law, without any of the trying to go our own way, we will finally fully understand what it is to be loved by God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.